Retweets, forwards, sharing, forwarding emails, all of those things are possible because Section 230 means that you, a user, will not be sued for the content of others. Welcome to Episode 450 of the Community Broadband Bits Podcast. This is Ryan Marcatilio McCracken here at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. Today, Christopher talks with Baron Zoka, president of the nonprofit organization Tech Freedom, which focuses on issues of internet freedom and technological progress. Christopher and Baron dive right into the pressing broadband issues of today and tomorrow. They entangle the biggest barriers to universal, high-quality internet access that exist, including the jurisdictional issues facing communities large and small, and the regulatory solutions which would facilitate infrastructure deployment. They discuss whether we should spend public dollars, not just on rural broadband, where there are no options, but in town centers with slowly degrading copper networks, where monopoly providers have signaled little intent to ever upgrade that infrastructure. Christopher and Barron then dive into an issue Barron has been working on for the past few years, the Section 230 debate, and what it means for the future of the internet if content platforms become liable for the third-party content they host. Now here's Christopher talking with Barron. Welcome to another episode of the Community Broadband Bits Podcast. I'm Christopher Mitchell at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance in St. Paul, Minnesota. And I'm speaking today with Baron Zoka, the president of Tech Freedom. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Baron, I, um, I'm very excited to be having this conversation with you. I've been trying to have it for a few months. You are a, a person who has been very involved in um, a lot of issues lately, specifically around Section 230. We're going to come to that, uh, but we'll start by talking about um, broadband more generally. Um, you know, I wanted to say, I wrote this little introduction that you are the worst kind of person to disagree with um, because you're smart and you work hard. Um, and <laughs> I, I had different ways of trying to figure out how to um, how to come into this. But I wanted to say that in my work, I've run into people who have no principles that oppose municipal networks. And for a while, I had categorized you as one of them. And and watching what you do, I came to realize that I was very wrong, um, that you that you do oppose municipal networks in many circumstances, but that you are a person who has deep principles. Um, you spent years illustrating them unpopularly and standing up um, against authoritarian politics. And as someone who is now more concerned about authoritarianism than almost anything else in the United States, I am very excited to talk broadband tech with you. So thank you for coming on the show uh, to talk about it. Well, uh, th thanks for having me. And, you know, just, just for context, I spent a lot of time in this area, uh, say from 2012 to 2017, and I basically haven't touched it since, precisely because I've spent the last four years uh, dealing with, uh, <laughs> with issues of uh, fundamentally about of creeping authoritarianism and, uh, and the growing fixation on the right with controlling speech online. So, uh, so I will say everything I say today uh, is, uh, is somewhat rusty. And I'm, I, I will confess, I'm not I'm not as up to speed as I used to be on uh, on, on what's happened. So I, I think we'll talk at a, at a high level about uh, about how to approach these problems uh, rather than all of the details of, uh, of of particular solutions. Yes, and I wish you were more rusty on the consumer welfare standard, which is something that my organization and you probably have about as extreme disagreements on as we could. Um, but um, I also note you came from Duke, which um, has the most aggravating sports teams on the planet. <laughs> I wouldn't know. I've never watched any Duke I thought you were going to say that. Yeah, no, yeah. I appreciate that. Uh, you're, I, I you're am not a sports guy. ball person. 
Yes. But no, I, um, I, I'm, I'm appreciative of having this discussion. And I think people should really have a better sense of, of why, you know, you disagree on a number of these issues and why other people, I mean, there's a lot of people that, that have the disagreements you do. And I feel like some of them may, we may be closer to agreement on than others. Um, so I wanted to, to flesh those out, but let's start with, um, here it is in 2021, you know, whole new Congress, new administration. Um, if you had a, a magic uh, ability to make a few changes in broadband related policy, what would you do uh, in order to improve Internet access or make it possible for more investment? Uh, well, first, I want to note that uh, for better or worse and mostly worse, it's not a whole new Congress. It's mostly the same Congress. <laughs> and I wouldn't I wouldn't assume that things are going to change significantly. Uh, and second, I would say that uh, what what I find very frustrating about this debate generally is that it usually gets reduced to uh, very dumb binaries. And if anything, if I had to choose a, a shorthand for how I uh, try to approach my work, it's uh, to be ideologically non-binary. Uh, I mean, most issues are really not as simple as being uh, pro or con, and, and there's, there are a lot of moving pieces. So that's what I'd like to talk about today. Uh, so just for example... Uh, this this debate often gets started uh, as being, are you for or against muni broadband? What should cities do? Well, I just want to start by noting that it's, there are a lot of other moving pieces that don't get attention when we when we just focus on that narrow uh, piece of the um, of the pie. And I understand why we, why some people do because cities uh, have agency and they have the capacity to act, and for them. Uh, it may be a binary choice. Do we build X or do we not build X network? Uh, but for years, um, we at Tech Freedom have been trying to highlight that the, the, the broadband challenges of uh, Americans are quite diverse. Uh, they're not all the same. Uh, and in particular, as somebody who is uh, from New Mexico and spends a lot of time uh, out West, uh, I think I think it's difficult for many people to understand how remote uh, many communities are. <laughs> And, um, you know, that, that's true for the Navajo Nation and the tribes, but it's also true for uh, towns and, and small cities, uh, especially across the West, uh, where uh, building a, a local fiber to the home network uh, wouldn't really improve anyone's broadband service because they don't have um, long haul fiber lines. They, many of these places still rely on microwave dishes to connect them uh, to very remote locations. As someone who grew up on the East Coast and um, has lived in Minnesota for more than 25 years, it's it's interesting to me how the kind of distances you drive in the Midwest, which is nothing compared to the West, are so far outside the realm of the imaginable of people growing up in New England, for instance, where like, the idea of driving 50 miles is nuts. And 50 miles puts you like a quarter of the way across a county in New Mexico or in Washington. Yeah. And it's not just distance, although distance is a big part of that. And maybe in the show notes, maybe you can include a link to, um, uh, there's an excellent uh, graph that was just put out recently about uh, just showing you on, on, a, on a heat graph uh, how far apart uh, towns and cities are around the country and how long you have to drive out west to, to get to the nearest town and city. And that really helps you understand just, just how, uh, how remote many of these places are. Uh, but it's not just that they're remote. It's also that, um, that getting to those places uh, requires uh, traversing uh, a, a, a maze of federally owned, uh, state owned, and in some cases tribally owned lands. And, and I just want everyone to understand, just, just to start, that um, if you're trying to do a deployment to one of those communities or somewhere along the way, um, 
you could run into a single roadblock where a single federal agency or a single state agency or whatever uh, drags its feet or charges you an exorbitant fee, and that could kill your project. So, 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 so those things are the things that I, I think we should start uh, thinking about. And um, our suggestion a few years ago was uh, first and foremost that, so we, we, we coined the term that uh, what became the Broadband Deployment Advisory Committee. We called for that um, years before uh, Pi actually created it. And this was one of the things that we wanted to have scoped out. And my sense, uh, again, I, I have not kept up with all the details since, but my sense is that, um, that there's a lot of uh, good uh, talk uh, that's come out of the BDAC, um, but not a lot of um, follow through because it's hard to get federal agencies absent a statute uh, to change their practices and to, um, for example, uh, to me, it should be a no brainer that we should do uh, conduit along uh, any federal federally funded road project so that the conduit is there, it's available to anybody who wants it. And um, you know, the federal government doesn't have to do all the work, but uh, if people want to co-locate their, their fiber while that's being done, then they should be invited to do so and we should charge them a, an appropriate rate. I mean, that's the kind of thing that if we did that well, could begin to build out a, a much denser fiber network uh, across this country. And that, importantly, that would not only provide better service to local communities, but also provide better uh, wireless service uh, to people who may live so far in very low density areas uh, that they're just never going to get a wireline uh, connection, but they might get a better service uh, from that cell tower along the highway. See, one of the things that I've counseled when I've been asked about this is that I do not think that it changes enough to do that. But you raised an interesting point that I hadn't considered, which was just the ability to avoid environmental impact statements um, along the way um, is, is significant. And I think it's worth noting. Um, I think that there's jurisdictional issues that have also plagued this and that like you have um, a highway, a federally owned highway that's crossing lands. And to some extent, I feel like we just need to like suck it up and put some requirements on a state agency that it can have a, a light touch approach to managing that rather than saying, all right, we have to negotiate with these three different counties that have jurisdiction um, as you're crossing through it. But those are those are problems that that can be done. And for the life of me, I don't understand why it hasn't gone through. Like <laughs> my, my understanding is it's just institutional resistance and a, a lack of, uh, of willingness to put this into statute. I mean, this problem could be solved at the federal level. I mean, the particular problem of doing this along the interstate highways, you know, federal money funds these road projects. I don't see any reason why this couldn't be made a requirement of, of doing the road projects. Uh, we were told that it was like a penny on the dollar. If you're already mm -hmm. doing the work, putting in conduit is is really cheap. Uh, putting in fiber may be a little bit more expensive. But, but you know, but those are costs that should be borne by whoever wants to build their networks there. Uh, I just think that that's the kind of um, basic infrastructure that the government should be providing. So so throughout our discussion here, that's why when I said earlier, that I don't think this should be a simple binary. I think government has a role here, uh, and my general preference is for government to provide the um, infrastructure at the lowest level of the stack, if you will. And at a minimum, that means conduit. And it means some other things like, you know, lamp posts and uh, and other places where you might attach infrastructure and maybe the power for that. But uh, in general, I think we should socialize that uh, and have, uh, have a reasonable rates charged there uh, and see how that goes uh, before we assume that we have to 
socialize the uh, the delivery of the uh, of the network itself. Yeah, and what's interesting is I think this doesn't have to even be a money loser. My sense is is that there's a number of networks who would pay more than they might today to do it themselves if they would just have the certainty. I mean, you know, part of what you're saying is not just that your permit might take a while. It's that you don't know if your permit's going to take three months or three years. Yeah. And you cannot plan under those circumstances. Yeah, it's impossible. And or, 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 or the way to think about it, it's not, remember, if you're doing deployment, it's not just like, you know, am I going to deploy at all? It's where am I going to deploy? And, mm-hmm. and so there's a real issue of, of institutional bias here where what ends up happening is that the communities where those risks exist, that you may not get an approval. You know, if, if deploying in X place requires the approval of 10 uh, state agencies and a bunch of, of uh, federal agencies, you're just not going to do it. And you're going to go spend your dollars elsewhere. And then those people don't get served. And that that mm-hmm. is that's that is a terrible kind of uh, inequity that is just worked by just the, the, the dead weight loss of bureaucracy. My sense is one of the things that is holding this up is a lack of money, that the agencies aren't just deciding to take this long to process because they're like, we don't want internet anywhere. It's more that they've asked Congress to fund budgets that would allow them to hire people to process the permits. And you have um, reps and senators who are happy to grandstand about these terrible agencies, but then vote no on the funding package to allow them to more rapidly um, go through the permits. Is, is that your sense of what yeah, the holdup it, is? It, it is. Uh, I think that's a big part of it. And I think, uh, I, I think what we need here, you asked me what I wanted to see happen this year. What I think we need is an update to the National Broadband Plan uh, from 2010, which I think was a very, it was one of the best things that came out of the Obama administration. Um, and, and it was great in particular because it tried to take a whole of government approach. I think we need to do that, but this time we need to be much more focused on what you're talking about of, um, okay, but practically speaking, what will it take to implement this? And what are the roadblocks? So some of this is, is just pure legal change, like uh, exclusion from... I mean, if, if all you're doing is putting a conduit along a road, there's no reason that you should be subject to any additional environmental review, just for example, right? That's mm-hmm. not a funding issue. That, that may be a legal issue that can simply be changed. In other cases, yes, it may be that some uh, people need more staff to review, but maybe they shouldn't have to make those reviews. Maybe they shouldn't, maybe it should just get done automatically. That's why I say what we really need is, uh, is an update to the National Broadband Plan that works through these things, that asks what has been done through the BDAC. Um, remember, the BDAC is basically all voluntary, right? It's just, you know, mm-hmm. here's what should be done at the state level, at the federal level by, by providers voluntarily. Uh, I think we need to take this conversation to what should be put into statute uh, to simplify and ease deployment at all levels. So let's assume for a second we're living three years in the future and we do not have middle mile as a problem anymore, but we don't have robust competition yet. Um, I have a sense of why I think that hasn't happened. Do you have a sense? I mean, would you predict that that is um, the the kind of the major barrier to more robust competition? Uh, or would you even say that we have robust competition today? So remember, I'm, we're talking about different markets, right? So Mm-hmm. I, in many parts of the country, everything that I've just been discussing about, about middle mile deployment is irrelevant because that's not the issue, right? I understand sure. that. I'm just pointing out that there are a lot of people who... Um, that's not a hard problem to solve. Like, we can get that done. Like, let's, <laughs> let's get it done. Yeah, but, but, but in particular, I, one of the reasons I'm focused on those people is those are the people who, who have the least choices today. 
I mean, in mm -hmm. many, I think it's a mistake to focus on cities where we already have competition between cable and uh, fiber uh, services. Now, you might not think that's enough. You might have uh, certain complaints about that. But I, I, I think uh, we should be focused on, um, on those people who have one, one shitty service today. One thing that never gets discussed in this conversation is um, that uh, there are a lot of people who still rely on their twisted copper pair connection to their home. Uh, mm -hmm. But it's also worth noting just how much progress has been made in upgrading those connections using technologies like VDSL2, where by putting fiber closer to the home, uh, they have in fact been able to get in, in the huge uh, swaths of the country. I mean, most of AT&T's footprint, um, the vast majority of it, has those speeds of I think VDSL2, if you're, if I remember correctly, it's been a long time, but if you're, say, within uh, 2K of the home, uh, you can get speeds of like 75 uh, megabits per second. No, I think, I mean, this is, I think, where you might be a little bit rusty. rusty. You, you correct me. I, I, I haven't <laughs> looked at these numbers in a while. You know, and I think that there might be um, cut sheets of um, on vendors that would say that, but in our experience, it's more like... Um, 1,000 feet for um, like, uh, you know, 35, 20, 30, just in part because of the degradation of the copper. Mm, um, mm -hmm. And so it, it depends on, again, on what part of the country you're in. You probably don't rust as fast in the Southwest as <laughs> as we do up North. Be that as it may, my, my point is precisely that those are the people that I think um, we should be focused on because, you right. know, those are people who are not being served by, comp by uh, competition between cable and fiber networks in in cities, but they don't have a middle mile problem. They have two providers, and I just I just think that there's a there's a real uh, lack of focus on those communities. And and part of the solution there really is the middle mile solution. It's about pushing fiber uh, deeper into the networks. And I think if you're looking for a way to spend taxpayer dollars, uh, everything that I've seen uh, led me to believe that uh, if you have a limited amount of money, which we do that you're probably better off um, doing that than trying to replace all of those connections with fiber to the home. Now, I want to talk briefly about Minnesota in relation to this, which I'm not expecting you to be an expert on. But if you'll take my facts as granted, we can we can talk about them. And, and I'll just say that you're not necessarily agreeing that I'm right, but for the purpose of conversation, you are. So the short version is in Minnesota, there's this great idea of like, let's put a lot of money into rural broadband, by which they meant both farms, but also town centers. And town centers, not where you would have the robust competition of like modern cable that's very fast, but a cable system that's limping along at like 30 or 40 megabits a second. It's barely able to provide um, a good signal. Uh, it is often unreliable and may go a day or two with an outage every few months. Um, these are people that show up on the national broadband statistics as having good service, more or less, and yet they don't. And in Minnesota, when this program came up, Comcast, more or less, with its political power, rewrote it so that it was, all the money was just going out to the farms and people where they had nothing. And none of the money was really available for the town centers that supported those farms. And so I'm, I'm curious, you know, what your what your sense is in there. And in terms of not necessarily, again, the facts, but like ideologically speaking, in my mind, these are areas in which like these providers have had let's just say 10 years, they probably had more than 10 years to do a better job. Like they're just, whether they're not, whether they don't care or whether they're just unable to, I feel like we're not getting the job done. And I would like to see government providing competition um, with taxpayer dollars there. Okay. Yeah. So I'll, I'll, what you described sounds realistic to me. Uh, not an expert, but I, I, I'm not going to uh, quibble about uh, your description. 
Um, I would say that, as I said before, with the middle mile problem, so you and I are town councilors on a, a, some small town in Minnesota, and the question is, how should we spend our taxpayer dollars? And, and, and in general, my proposal is that we do something analogous to what I've described uh, for the middle mile approach, uh, which is sure, okay, fine, if the city is going to uh, wire uh, or, or, or build out infrastructure, I think we should we should do it from the bottom up. And instead of instead of leaping to the assumption that that the city itself should uh, do a fiber connection to every home and then provide service to it, I think we should ask ourselves uh, if we can get more bang for our taxpayer dollar by uh, putting conduit under every street, by maybe even going all the way to every home. Uh, and then inviting uh, private companies to do the rest. And, and I think that if you work your way up the stack, so to speak, uh, getting closer to the home, uh, where government is providing the dumbest parts of the infrastructure, uh, I, I think you can enable competition uh, to a greater degree than exists today uh, without, without necessarily going to the, uh, the city running the network. So that, 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 that's my approach. Mm-hmm. And... Um, I think a lot of this ultimately comes down to uh, to cost. And I let me put it this way. I can imagine a scenario where if you're going to do that work anyway, the marginal cost of putting the fiber and the equipment in is so low that it doesn't make sense um, to, to expect uh, to have multiple companies do it. Okay? But I can also imagine that uh, that's not the case uh, and that it's, uh, that it's easier for the city to just say, look, you know, here's... We, we built the conduits. Here, here are the places where you can plug in your uh, hardware. Uh, and, uh, and then, you know, you, you want to run a local service? Uh, go knock yourself out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right in that the, um, the costs vary on that. And also, there's places in which there's local providers that would love to be a part of that. And there's other places where they may not have that, depending on the part of the country you're in. And, and, and my point is, it shouldn't be an ideological decision, right? Just as I'm open to the possibility that in some circumstances, maybe it does make sense for the local government to do it. I think this, it should go the other way as well. And I just, I, I, I don't like the, the way that these conversations unfold, where it becomes this simple binary, where if you, uh, if, if you're not in favor of the government uh, doing this, uh, then you're just uh, you're just apologizing for the status quo. I, I just I think if you look at this from an economic, if you take a dispassionate uh, perspective, I, I think you'd get better decisions made, and uh, and 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 we ought to be able to um, enable that with with federal policy, right? There should be a federal framework that supports that kind of decision making, and um, because. Just for example, the street that I live on in downtown D.C. is a federally funded street. It's not a highway, but it happens to be federally designated. So the federal government, you know, could put conduit in this street. And that that could significantly improve, even even if this were a small town and all we had was uh, VDSL service. Even if the, all the federal government did was, was supporting the deployment of conduit in the streets that crisscross the city, you know, that, that, that could put the node within a, a thousand feet of my house. So... That's my approach. I think we should give it a chance. Yeah, and we are starting to see some places that are doing that sort of approach, which I'm very excited about. Um, West Des Moines is one, um, but I think we'll see more of a conduit type model. The last question on this is um, is one that's, uh, does it make a difference to you um, from your perspective, whether the city would, for instance, tax everyone like a utility tax to pay for something like this? Or if 
um, they go out and they borrow money from private investors who are then repaid with revenues from the system. Um, in, in, in theoretically, in the second case, people's taxes aren't being raised, um, and it's debatable. Then you can argue about a subsidy because of uh, investor expectations of of taxes being raised to pay for it or not. Um, but I'm just curious if you see a difference. In I that. mean, to, to me, it doesn't matter. It's it's revenue today versus revenue in the future. It's uh, it it's it's still not a level playing field with the private sector. Uh, the government is able to borrow at uh, hugely lower rates. Uh, they're able to uh, tax users, uh, not just today, but in the future. You're never going to have a private network operating on a level playing field with a, a publicly owned network, which is in part why I think we should work our way up from, from the bottom. And uh, in the model that I described, you know, even the incumbents, uh, they could use the network infrastructure that I'm describing just as easily as anyone else could. Right. I mean, it's they could they have a history of not. <laughs> yeah. And you know what? If they don't want to use it, fine. That's their loss. Right. But right. Well, let me just say I want to move on to Section 230. I I will say that it is we see differences in terms of the abilities of local governments to um, borrow money that are um, not as good as you would say, um, in part because if you're an investor and you're trying to figure out like, look, on the one hand, I can give this money to Comcast and I can get this return or I can give this money to this untested local government. Yeah, their <laughs> bond ratings vary. I, I get it. Yeah. And, and and so, by the way, on that on that note, it does matter whether this is being done at the local level or the state level, mm-hmm. because presumably the state is going to have a better bond rating, uh, generally speaking. I, I want to say one more thing about broadband deployment, which is uh, I, I just I can't not mention that uh, one enormously positive thing has happened uh, since uh, since I was last engaged in these debates, uh, which is that we now have the deployment of uh, of the first satellite-based network that is in fact a uh, a, a real substitute for uh, terrestrial wireline broadband. The Starlink network is uh, is a lower. I'm a former satellite lawyer, so I got to just put in a plug for this. <laughs> uh, you know, does not have the latency that these uh, that the that my former clients, when I back uh, 15 years ago, when I did uh, work for companies like v, uh, Viasat, uh, you know, the, those services have an enormous latency. They're they're slow, and they and they never get better over time, right? The Starlink network uh, is uh, is a much 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 lower. It's not a geostationary orbit, right? So you don't have to wait, you know, uh, half a you know, like a quarter of a minute uh, for for a ping. Yeah, no, I think uh, the listeners are probably pretty familiar with um, low Earth orbit. Um, what's happening with Starlink for the yeah, most part? And, but and I just yeah, it's, without getting into all the details, I just want yeah. to note that it is a great marketplace success story. And um, I'm not saying that it means we shouldn't still care about uh, about other forms of deployment, but but it, it does address some of the people that I was talking about earlier. You know, who might not be in a in a city where it's going to be uh, feasible to do them to give them wire uh, wireline deployment, mm-hmm. and and I and I think what it means is that it allows us to focus uh, our conversation on serving um, areas of a certain amount of density. You actually you might have just proven yourself wrong on the first point because one of the things I love about Starlink is that it can provide robust backhaul, and so you might want to build those last mile networks without having. I'm really curious to see. In my mind, this is one of the great um, things that people are missing is how you could get really high quality backhaul over time 
from um from Starlink. And I'm and I'll say that I'm I'm I think I've changed my tune on Starlink quite a bit um based on real facts that are coming in. It's remarkable. Well, that's why I respect you because uh clearly for you this is about technology and, and economics and not uh pure ideology and that's the right way to look at these things. Section two thirty is something that I have not discussed much in this show. And and I've been fascinated. You know, like I really like um Mike Masnick I think has made really good points about it. Um, you know, I think um, I'm not someone who totally rejects Matt Stoller's point of view, which is that I think totally contrary to your point of view um, on it, which is like he's sort of like, get rid of Section 230. Let's just see what happens. It'll be great. Screw Facebook. Um, and so, you know, it's one of these things that I feel like um, is quite important, but I can't figure out how I would predict um, how it's going to go. So let me just ask you, point, point blank. What does Section 230 matter? Why is this something that's worth so much of the time you've sunk into it? Yeah, so Section 230 is the law that made today's internet possible. It, uh, it, people think they know what it means, and they generally don't, right? So uh, first, uh, who's covered, right? Any provider of an interactive computer service. So that includes uh, broadband networks. So uh, it's actually really important for local broadband networks, lest they be sued for content that any of their users prov- mm-hmm. provide, right? Not such a big deal for Comcast, but that could... could drive out of business, a small local provider. So it is it is directly relevant to your audience. Um, so it provides uh, that immunity, uh, which I'll talk about in a moment, to all providers or users of interactive computer services. So uh, for example, uh, President Trump himself, uh, despite his complaints about Section 230, invoked the law in order to uh, have a lawsuit against him dismissed uh, that alleged that he had uh, spread defamation simply by retweeting it. Retweets, forwards, sharing, forwarding emails, all of those things are possible because Section 230 means that you, a user, will not be sued for the content of others. Let's just make that very clear for a second, right? So I create a website and I'm, I write a bunch of stuff that I wrote. I sign it, Chris Mitchell, and I'm liable for that if I defame someone or something because like that. Because you are the information content provider of that content. Right. Now, I say, hey, much of my friends should come and, and write stuff and sign their names to it. And they do. And then the question is, should I be held liable for something that they say? Or should they be held liable for something they right. say? And that's Section 230's answer is, uh, no, you have to sue the people who created the content. So that, that, that's what it means to be an interactive uh, computer service provider right. is that you're, you're, you're providing access to content created uh, by others and by, not at all by you. You bear no responsibility for creating it. And, and, and here, it's important to note that Section 230 has two functions. Uh, one of them is to prevent you from being sued for hosting content or providing access to content like a search engine does uh, to others. Uh, and the second is to prevent you from being sued for moderating that content because you find it objectionable. These, these are the two big debates that are going on. They're, uh, they're both called Section 230 debates, uh, but they're very different. And in general, it's mostly the case that Democrats want... Uh, websites do more to deal with uh, uh, lawful but awful content. And, uh, and Republicans uh, in general uh, want websites to do less to moderate the kinds of lawful but on- awful content that they don't like. So they want websites to clean up pornography and profanity and other things they think are bad for kids, um, but they don't want websites to take down anything that, uh, that might hurt them politically, like misinformation, uh, voter suppression, hate speech. We go on and on and on with all the things that re- suddenly Republicans have decided are uh, suddenly like conservative speech. Those are the two debates uh, I, as I said, have spent most of the last three years on this topic. Uh, the first issue was uh, 
uh, amending Section 230 in 2017 to um, to allow uh, prosecution civil suits uh, for uh, websites um, who might be uh, somehow facilitating sex trafficking. Now, Section 230 never protected them from criminal prosecution. So Backpage, uh, the founders of Backpage, uh, were already uh, under uh, investigation and were indicted within three days of SESTA becoming law. So SESTA wasn't necessary to, to mm-hmm. get them. Backpage uh, was, a, was, a, was a bad site doing bad things. Uh, we didn't need SESTA to do that. Uh, but n- now we're having uh, other conversations about uh, trying to... Um, Crackdown on uh, anonymous speech online or the use of encryption through the Earn It Act. Uh, that's uh, something that Democrats and Republicans agree on, while Republicans, meanwhile, are pushing what amounts to a new version of the Fairness Doctrine for the Internet that would uh, allow the government or judges to second-guess whether websites are being fair or neutral in how they treat uh, speech for political reasons. Would you say it's fair to say that all of these things you've spent your time on is basically defending the internet so that it will continue working despite sort of the short-term political calculations of people who are doing it for crass political reasons? Uh, you might very well say that. I couldn't possibly <laughs> comment. Uh, no, that's exactly right. Uh, and uh, and it, is, it, it, it is just disgusting, uh, especially when you see people who know better. Uh, I mean, just for example, Kathy McMorris-Rogers uh, in late 2019 said exactly what I would say about all this nonsense, that this is the fairness doctrine for the internet, conservatives are supposed to be against this, not the government's job to police fairness or whatever, and then now is uh, leading the House GOP's push for exactly the things that she opposed and is even going further. I mean, she wants to give uh, people who think they've been censored by websites a private right of action to sue the website. It, It just typifies this thinking that Conservatives keep saying that uh, that Section 230 is to blame for all this, quote, censorship, unquote. Well, actually, it's the First Amendment. The First Amendment protects websites' right to decide what speech they want to carry, just as it protects the right of newspapers to decide which op-eds they want to run. All Section 230 does with respect to content moderation is allow websites to quickly vindicate that First Amendment right in court with a simple motion to dismiss without having to litigate all of the First Amendment questions, which would be monstrously expensive. And it's a very simple proposition, but I've now spent uh, two plus years trying to get people to understand that, and they don't want to. I very much appreciate it. And I feel like, I, I do want to ask you this this question, like, do you just, I mean, do you pull your hair out when people are sort of like, well, let's just try it without 230 and see what happens? We know what happens. We know uh, what the what kind of liability websites face in foreign countries. Uh, and we also know that none of those countries is as litigious as the United States is. So so for just for example, without getting into too much detail, Section 230 essentially superseded the common law, which would have held, and it did hold in two cases, that you would be that uh, uh, an ISP would be liable uh, if it tried to monitor uh, or moderate content that would make them more liable. Uh, if they had knowledge or should have had knowledge, they could be sued, right? That, that is basically the, the law today in uh, Canada and Britain and so on. But one reason that this uh, sort of liability hasn't been such a problem there is um, these countries uh, have uh, loser pay laws. Um, they have a completely different dynamic of litigation. So, you know, Section 230 is, in, in my view, is, is, is really a kind of tort reform, right? It, it, it is a necessary thing 
to allow the internet to exist and to flourish in the United States, given the way our, our system works and how easy it is to sue. You can file a complaint without really going through any legal analysis. And you could do it yourself. You could pay a lawyer $500 to do it. And then someone may have to spend uh, $20,000 to $80,000 uh, filing the, the motion to dismiss and going through just the, the very, very earliest stages of litigation to, to get rid of your lawsuit. And then if they have to go all the way to litigation, I mean, this could cost millions of dollars. There's such an asymmetry of cost that it's just very easy to weaponize the legal system. So your listeners mm -hmm. might be familiar with anti-slap laws. Well, that's what I was thinking. I was thinking of the example of whether it's you or me, either one of us have websites that are controversial to some population. And all a few, a few of them just start filing lawsuits and we wouldn't be able to do much except for spend all of our time responding probably with the same exact wording almost every time. Which is why most states, not all, not the federal government, have passed these uh, laws that protect against what are called strategic lawsuits against public participation, where you you write a review critical of your dentist or you post something critical of a political candidate or whatever, and then someone sues you for defamation, the anti-slap law allows you to dismiss that lawsuit quickly in court. Section 230, with respect to content moderation, uh, serves exactly the same purpose against what I would call strategic lawsuits against moderation. You know, you remove somebody because they uh, posted Holocaust denial content on your site and they sue you. Uh, and, uh, you know, if you didn't have Section 230, uh, you may not feel comfortable moderating them, or you may just shut down the comment section completely. So those are the problems that Section 230 uh, solves, in addition to making it possible for you to host that content in the first place, which is the the other function. That's, that's what most cases uh, involving Section 230 are about. It's the liability for third-party content, not this liability for moderating third content that Republicans are now obsessed with. Well, I really appreciate your time today, Baron. Um, and I also appreciate all the work you've gone through. And I deeply appreciate that <laughs> you've had the backbone and the courage to stand up against um, a lot of attacks over the last few years as um, as you've been tried in ways that I hope I never am um, in terms of seeing who my true friends are <laughs> in this space. So um, yeah. thank you for all of that. Well, thank you. And as we often say, the, uh, you know, the, the, the party of the future uh, is not, uh, it, it, it's not limited to any political party and uh you can't assume that um that your friends are uh just because you've agreed with people on on x y or z issues in the past you can't assume that they're actually with you on you know the more fundamental questions which i think you know you you i i mentioned this earlier i salute you for for being willing to uh to think about all these things from a you know a, a dispassionate pragmatic um cost and benefit analysis uh and, and, and not, not to turn everything into the culture war, whether it's uh, the rights culture mm -hmm. war or, you know, uh, a, a simple anti-corporate agenda. Um, and I think, I think those are the people who are willing to do that, to have those serious conversations, those are the people that I think are really on, on my side. So I'm, I'm trying to spend more time talking to those people <laughs> and be happy to talk to any of your listeners who want to continue this conversation. Steve, you have one more minute. Do you have a minute? Yeah. On that, I feel like right now people on the left are stuck between this sense of like, we have an advantage. Let's figure out how to just quickly pass some things that are in line with our with what we want to see happen. You know, like sort of like the Republicans are down right now. Let's figure it out. And I feel like others of us are just like, holy crap, 
we're really close to all of this unraveling. Like <laughs> we need to figure out how to like stop this. Is that what, is that what you're seeing? I mean, like, do you see that sort of like, um, like from, from your position on a more conservative point of view, is uh, that what you what, see on the uh, left? Whatever. Oh. Yeah. Like whatever that word means. Yeah. Right. Well, no, I'm, so this is, I've been for years, I've been railing against people who use socialism or capitalism as though they have a meaning Co- conservative liberal at this point. Like, yeah, I agree. But as someone who does not align himself with Bernie Sanders or AOC on many issues, <laughs> let's say, and you're watching people who do, um, do you have a sense that right now there's a sense that people are in the Democratic Party are, are willing to gamble more in the sense that like maybe this isn't a, a extreme moment of reckoning? Because um, I, I lose sleep over this a little bit for people who haven't figured it out yet. The next few minutes are going to be political. If you're not interested in our opinions on that, yeah, go to your next podcast. <laughs> yeah. So so at this point, I think there are really two kinds of people in America. There are the, uh, wherever you are in the political spectrum, there are those who look at the last four years as a blip. And then want to get back to whatever, whatever their preconceived agenda was, uh, and there are those who understand that uh, that this this experience has really exposed uh, fundamental weaknesses in our system of government, and and I think if if you're if you're in the latter category, uh, you have to prioritize real institutional change and um, safeguards against repeating these lessons. It, it, it should it should color everything you do. So. I'm not saying you should give up on your agenda, but just for example, uh, if you're focused on local broadband deployment, you should ask yourself, what is going to happen when the uh, MAGA state government or uh, city council uh, tries to uh, tries to manipulate or politicize the process? Now, probably the First Amendment would prevent them from imposing content restrictions. Maybe that's a good enough answer. Um, it's not going to prevent them from politicizing uh, how deployment works. I'm not saying you shouldn't try, but you should be thinking about it and building it into your uh, analysis. Um, but I'll give you another example of something that I find very disappointing. Um, so Senator Klobuchar, who, who I uh, voted for in the primary, so I, I'm, a, I'm a fan in general. Um, <laughs> but in many She's ways, one of my senators. So. Well, in many ways, <laughs> she doesn't seem to have taken this lesson to heart because, for example... One of the things she proposes changing in the antitrust laws is uh, that uh, she would flip the presumption so that uh, if you're doing a merger over a certain dollar amount, you would have to convince the government to allow your merger to proceed. Now, I get it. If you are skeptical of mergers, I understand why that sounds good. But we already know how that goes. Like That's how things work at the Federal Communications Commission where you've got to basically, it's like applying for a new license. You have to convince the government to, to let your deal go through. And we already know what that, what that uh, allows the government to do, which is to hold your deal hostage until you do whatever they want. It's, it's a, a system that's rife for abuse. And it just, it just surprises me that uh, people on the left don't understand that they are uh, offering opportunities to uh, future MAGA administrations or, or worse uh, to do things like that. And, it, and partly I think that's because we didn't have a Trumpist running the FCC, right? We didn't, we didn't actually see how they would abuse their power. But next time we will. Right. And by that, you mean, um, for instance, President Rubio would have probably appointed Ajit Pai. Like almost any Republican would have appointed him. He's... Ajit Pai was appointed by Barack Obama. I mean, right. Well, no, but I mean, like to chair. I mean, right. But, you know, so, you know, two were there pre-existing Trump and the third was a was a, a staffer for uh, Pi. Right. Only at the very end of the administration did we actually see what a Trump 
pick would look like, Nathan mm-hmm. Simington, who it was clearly put on the commission for political reasons because he passed yeah. the loyalty test that to keep you Ma- very busy that Mike O'Reilly failed. Right. <laughs> my, my point is just that um, mm-hmm. I think we have to we have to take seriously the uh, potential for all of our institutions to be weaponized and abused in the future, and we have to stress test them. And I just don't see people doing that. I don't see them asking themselves, how is this power going to be uh, abused potentially? And, and potentially anything could be. And again, that's not a reason not to do it. But mm-hmm. but you need to, it's like, it's like, you know, you do environmental impact assessments for, to take environmental protection seriously. In a way, I guess what I'm saying is you should be doing like a, like a democratic or a rule of law uh, impact assessment in the future. And you should have to, to stress test what you're proposing and ask yourself who's making decisions and, and how might this be misused and how can we build in safeguards in advance to guard against that? Yeah, I think my colleagues at ILSR would probably be frustrated if I didn't at least say that I think we might disagree on that particular one about um, about Klobuchar. I read what you wrote about uh, about that particular instance, and I think there's, I'm not going to sit here and say that, that there's no merit to it. Um, I do have a sense, I'm curious how you respond to this, that I don't know, like, I don't know that there's any safeguards. My, one of the lessons I take away from the last few years is that there's just no safeguards that will preserve um, the presidency if we have another four years of a of that dynamic. Well, uh, yeah. So on, on one level, I sort of agree with you, which is that I think what this experience has revealed is that the fundamental problem with America is um, our system of government. I mean, we, we are the <laughs> yeah. we are the only liberal democracy. And, and by that, I exclude a country like Hungary uh, that has a um, a combination of a strong presidential system uh, and a, uh, a first past the post system for electing its its Congress or its legislature. I mean, it's a recipe for disaster, right? Mm-hmm. It, it it reduces politics to these stupid binaries where everything necessarily becomes tribalized. And and if I if I weren't doing what I'm doing with my life now, I would be focused on uh, on trying to get people to take seriously fundamental constitutional reform. Not not you know just tinkering with the electoral college or or whatever else. I think we need a. Uh, a much stronger legislature that can actually pass things. Like, you know, getting rid of the filibuster would be a start, right? Mm-hmm. When you win elections, as in any parliamentary system, you should be able to enact your agenda subject to yeah. constitutional limits, and you should be held accountable for it. And you know, you should be thrown out of office if you lose. And uh, and ideally, you should have to build a coalition with other parties that represent other uh, constituent interests. And that you know, that's how the rest of the of the democratic world works. We are the outlier. Let me throw something crazy by you. People say that we're a two-party country, and I would argue that until basically you and my lifetime, we weren't. We were a three-party country. The Democrats weren't a party. They were two parties. They just had the same name. And and that's one of the reasons the system actually kind of didn't fall apart is because some of this wasn't possible under that system, I think. I, I would put it even more strongly than that. I would say that what we used to call parties were, in fact, uh, coalitions, uh, and it, we basically replicated the kind of multi-party system that other Western uh, democracies have. They just were under those two coalitions. Now, for the first time, we have uh, two highly polarized parties, where one of them is, is extremely polarized, and it obviously is run like it's a personality cult, and you can't deviate from the leader at all. And the Democratic Party is still is still more coalition-y, but, but, but this is a new phase in American politics, and mm-hmm. it just doesn't look different because it still has the same labels 
but it, it fundamentally has changed. You no longer have the diversity ideologically um, within each party that you used to have. And, and you know, in, in my best case scenario, you uh, have a much weaker presidency whose job is to ex execute the law, not, not make it, not run the country. And then uh, a Congress that is composed of people who are elected from multi-member districts uh, where the seats are awarded based on proportional representation. And in that world, uh, I don't know what party you'd belong to, but I would be in something more like the Free Democratic Party in Europe or any one of a number of, uh, of classical liberal, market liberal uh, parties that, uh, like the Free Democrats in, in Germany, uh, have been in coalition either with the left or the right, depending on circumstances and finds ways to work with people. And what's great about that dynamic is politics suddenly is no longer about destroying the other side. It becomes about competing for voters because the FDP and the Greens, they, they compete for some of the same voters. Uh, and, uh, and then you have to work with these parties in coalition. It's just a very different approach to governance. And I think, um, uh, America's never going to work correctly as long as we have our, our stupid uh, institutions that, that make this, uh, this, this, uh, this tribalized system inevitable. Well, this has been fun. I appreciate the extended version, um, the bonus track. <laughs> so. Well, happy to do it. Of course, none of that's going to happen. So uh, right. you know, things are just going to go downhill. That's my pessimistic yeah. Enjoy take. your civil war, everyone. <laughs> yeah, you joke, but... Uh... No, I, I do joke, and I joke about deeply uncomfortable things because I, you know, I just... People have this sense that like, I don't know, anyone who reads anything about World War One, you know, like the years leading up to it, there's a sense both that like, oh, well, this is going to go to crap, but also that we're so advanced now. We couldn't possibly have such a destructive, like horrible war. Um, and so I, um, I'm deeply concerned, but, uh, you know, what are we going to do except for do the best we can? We, um, you know, in our own ways, we'll make the, try to make the changes that will try to build the, the best stability for our children and uh and see what happens but you know there's 300 million people who get a vote so yeah and the only optimistic i would note uh note that i would end on is that um uh people who've written about how to resolve long-standing conflicts in places like northern ireland or rwanda that and applebaum writes about this uh they do say over and over that the you really can't change people's minds all you can do is uh is just get them to, to stop uh, obsessing about those those stupid tribal differences and yeah. And focus on other constructive things. And, and broadband deployment could be one of those. Uh, oh, yeah. When I talked about the middle mile at the outset of the call today, uh, those are Republican voters. These are people who are being left behind. And I think uh, figuring out uh, constructive ways to engage them and, and provide them service is an important part of a larger effort to, um, to detoxify our politics. That was Christopher talking with Baron Zoka. We have transcripts for this and other podcasts available at muninetworks.org slash broadbandbits. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org with your ideas for the show. Follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at communitynets. Follow muninetworks.org stories on Twitter. The handle is at muninetworks. Subscribe to this and other podcasts from ILSR, including Building Local Power, Local Energy Rules, and the Composting for Community podcast. You can access them anywhere you get your podcasts. You can catch the latest important research from all of our initiatives if you subscribe to our monthly newsletter at ILSR.org. While you're there, please take a moment to donate. Your support in any amount keeps us going. Thank you to Arnie Husby for the song Warm Duck Shuffle, licensed through Creative Commons. This was episode 450, 
of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. Thanks for listening.